The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. <laughs> another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's a, a bit of a different time. Uh, usually we're on a few hours later, mm-hmm. but tonight we have a, a very, very special guest, somebody who I'm really excited to have on the show. Um, if I may take a minute to geek out. <laughs> I, uh, every week. Which happens every week. Um, I grew up, you know, in the 90s and my favorite lineup was <laughs> Friday 90s. nights. And before. <laughs> and before. But, you know, uh, my favorite lineup was uh, on Fox Friday nights because it would be the X-Files followed by um, this show called Sightings. And this is how I was introduced to our guest tonight, uh, watching him talk about uh, everything from Roswell, Betty and Barney Hill, um, you know, his own um, studies into the, the field of uh, ufology, if I may use the term. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Genevieve, I know you have a, a, an introduction prepared for our guest, so why don't you go ahead and do the honors before we uh, bring him uh, into the conversation. All right, well, here's a little intro, and I say little, it's <laughs> it's pretty lengthy and impressive. So, um, nuclear physicist and Author, lecturer, Stanton Friedman is on the show tonight, and he received his bachelor's and master's degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 55 and 56. He he was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist by various companies, including GE, GM, Westinghouse, Astronuclear, Laboratory, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas Astronautics. He worked on highly advanced and classified programs, some involving nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and various compact nuclear power plants for space and terrestrial applications. It was in 1958 that he became interested in UFOs, and over the last 48 years he has lectured about them at more than 600 colleges and 100 professional groups, spanning all 50 U.S. states, all 10 Canadian provinces, and 18 other countries. He has published more than 90 UFO papers, has appeared in numerous documentaries, as well as on hundreds of radio and TV programs, including Larry King on four occasions. Most notably, Friedman was the first civilian to document the site of the Roswell UFO incident and supports the hypothesis that it was a genuine crash of an extraterrestrial spacecraft. In 1968, he told a committee of the U.S. House of Representatives that the evidence suggests that Earth is being visited by intelligently controlled extraterrestrial vehicles. Top Secret slash Magic is his controversial book about the Majestic 12 Group, which was established in 1947 to deal with alien technology and was published in 1996, undergoing six printings. In 2002, Friedman was presented with a Lifetime UFO Achievement Award in Leeds, England by UFO Magazine of the UK. And this is really great. So the city of Fredericton in New Brunswick, Canada, declared August the 27th in 2007 Stanton Friedman Day. 
Now, like, I'd love to have my own day, right? <laughs> That's pretty amazing. That's pretty rad. Um, July the 2nd, 2010, he was inducted into the Roswell UFO Hall of Fame for his long-term investigative efforts on that important case. He has provided written testimony to congressional hearings, appeared twice at the UN, and been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology, including Roswell, of course, the Majestic 12, the Betty Hill Marjorie Fish star map work, um, analysis of Delphos physical trace case, crash sources, flying sources technology, and challenges, also quite notably, um, challenges to the SETI cultus, and that stands for silly effort to investigate, apparently. <laughs> he has spoken at more MUFON conferences than anyone else. Wow. And <laughs> I think I could go on, but let's yeah. leave it there for now. Let's, let's uh, get uh, Mr. Stanton Freeman on the line. Uh, Mr. Freeman, can you hear me okay? I surely can. Thank you. I I use the word ufologist rather than uh, ufologist or something like that. Got you. Like biologist, you Mm -hmm. know, geologist, ufologist. (laughs) Very cool. First of all, let me thank you. Uh, Sincerely, I'm humble and grateful that you have taken time off to be on our show today. And uh, I know you're in the great country of uh, Canada at the moment, so I really appreciate you taking the time considering the time difference and, and how busy you are to be with us. Uh, as I mentioned, I've been following you quite a bit, so this is quite a special interview for me, so thank you. Well, I'm glad, and uh, I grew up with radio, so I love doing radio shows. You know, I grew up before there was television. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... As hard as that is to believe. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, you know, radio definitely, uh, there's a reason why it's still around. I think that it's it's a great medium, and, you know, it, it has allowed me the opportunity to uh, to converse with you in this manner. So if you'd be so kind, you know, the first question that comes to mind, how does a nuclear physicist uh, such as yourself, you, you worked uh, 14 years full-time as a, as a physicist, how does someone like you leave the full-time physicist field to focus on the investigation of uh, flying saucers? Oh, I thought I was still being a physicist. <laughs> I, it, wasn't, it was not an intentional uh, life path to get here. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, when I started lecturing, uh, I read my first book in 1958. Okay, uh, a, a very lucky first book, as it happens in retrospect. Uh, uh, Captain Edward Ruppelt's book, uh, uh, Flying Saucers, and well, I can't even remember the name of the book. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> we'll, we'll get it. But, yeah, no uh, worries. The, uh, Ruppelt was an Air Force captain, and he headed Project Blue Book in the early 50s. I read the book. It intrigued me. It didn't convince me, but I shared it with a neighbor. Charlie was 10 years older than I was, a darn good engineer, and he was more impressed than I was, and that impressed me. Mm. And I read 10 more books, and then I stumbled across, uh, strictly by accident, at the University of California Berkeley Library. Um, I stumbled across the largest study ever done for the United States Air Force, Project Blue Book Special Report 14, and I was shocked because of two things, really. It hadn't been mentioned in any of the ten books that I had read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was chock full of data. I mean, I'm a data man, and 240 charts, tables, graphs, maps, I was in data heaven. <laughs> and the guy who put it together uh, included the Air Force press release that was issued in 1955 when the study was completed. Mm-hmm. And that made me angry because... Here's what the the Secretary of the Air Force, no less. We're not talking about some flunky with nothing better to do. 
said, on the basis of this study, we believe that no objects such as those popularly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Hmm. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. That sounds very oh, wow. straightforward, except I had the report. Mm-hmm. And he lied. There's no other way to say it. The unknowns weren't 3% or 3.5%. Mm-hmm. I'd give him that, or 3.9 even, I'd let him round off. They were 21.5%. Wow. That's not 3% rounded off. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, they did a cross-comparison between the unknowns and the knowns, found that the probability that the unknowns were just misknowns was less than 1%. They found that the better the quality of the sighting, there were 3,201 sightings, and all the report evaluations, the final ones, were done by scientists working for Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, although that isn't mentioned in the press release, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. It's, it turns out uh, Battelle's connection with Air Force Intelligence was classified back then. Mm-hmm. We won't tell anybody, will we? Uh, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> uh, and they, they had uh, a, a separate category called insufficient information. Okay. So by definition, if there wasn't enough data available about a sighting, despite what the Secretary of the Air Force had said, it could not be listed as an unknown. Mm-hmm. It had to be listed appropriately enough as insufficient information. So even though I was working under security, mm-hmm. I got angry, and I wanted to get at the truth, and I don't like being lied to. Right. Uh, you know, I know you have to step tip to, tiptoe yeah. around uh, <laughs> classified information sometimes. But flat-out lying like that really made me angry. Mm-hmm. So I joined APRO and NICAP, the two big groups back then, got their newsletters, mm-hmm. uh, talked about it at work with my colleagues, uh, and then I uh, moved to, uh, well, I had several moves. I, I worked on more canceled programs than anybody I think. Not intentionally. Right. My dad worked for the same company for 37 years. I thought I would, too. I was wrong. <laughs> anyway, uh, after programs kept getting canceled mm-hmm. and I started lecturing strictly because I got on a radio show. I love the title. Contact was the name of the show in Pittsburgh, oh. Pennsylvania. Very cool. And it was I had called them to see if they'd be interested in having me, and it was one of those, don't call us, we'll call you. Well, less than a month later, they called me, but only because somebody had canceled at the last minute. They called me at 6.30 to be on a 7 o'clock show. Oh, wow. I live close to the station in Pittsburgh. So I went on, and somebody at work mm-hmm. heard me on the show and asked me to speak to her book review club. My first lecture was in somebody's living room. Wow. And I gave more lectures, did the show again. It got bigger audiences and mm-hmm. uh, fancier clientele, and I uh, was very pleased. I even asked uh, my boss at Westinghouse, I said, boy, you know, I really like doing these lectures hither and yon, uh, to, but I don't want to lose my job or my security clearance or, you know, mm-hmm. I got a mortgage to pay, to pay right. kids, et cetera, and uh, give, me, give me some feedback here. So they got back to me and said that... Uh, they gave me three rules, uh, and I thought these would last the rest of my career, <laughs> dreamer that I am. That they were, <laughs> you can identify yourself as a Westinghouse nuclear physicist. Mm-hmm. You can say what you want on your time, 
But we would like you to have a disclaimer at the beginning of the lecture, uh, something to the effect that the views you're about to hear are mine and mine alone and not those of my employer. Who could ask for anything more? Right. Well, I did ask for something more because I got a call from a colleague at Los Alamos uh, Scientific Laboratory, and he wanted me to speak to his American Nuclear Society chapter. Oh, wow. I'm in Pittsburgh. He's in New Mexico, mm -hmm. and I'm a member of the American Nuclear Society. And I said, uh, oh, I'd love to. He said, no, I mean on an expense account, Stan. I said, oh, I don't make those decisions. <laughs> <laughs> so I talked up, up the line. And they approved my going from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Los Alamos, New Mexico, wow. to give a lecture at that time. Flying saucers are real. Wow. On an expense account. <laughs> we weren't hiding it. It wasn't technical discussions, you know, with right. a title like that. Uh, and they had over 500 people for the talk, one of the biggest crowds they ever had. Mm -hmm. No nasty, noisy, negativist questions. We were both happy. And then... Uh, the, my contact there was working on nuclear rockets, as I had been with Westinghouse. Mm -hmm. And we had very successful tests. Uh, Westinghouse did, and Los Alamos did, and then they canceled the program. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> the history of my life. And, well, I looked around for a job. Uh -huh. I said I got responsibilities, and I got an offer from McDonnell Douglas in Santa Monica, California. Very nice. And my job, believe it or not, would be to figure out how flying saucers worked. I couldn't have asked. That's for fascinating. More, it's like a dream excited. job, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it was. And so I'm driving across the country, really looking forward to mm -hmm. it. Halfway across the country, I heard on the radio that the program that would, would have sponsored my being there at McDonnell Douglas had been canceled. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, so I report in, and the gal says, you know, we just let go. 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know. I heard. Uh, so they kept me for three months, and I realized I'd have to uh, look after myself. Mm -hmm. And so I got busy trying to book lectures, and I've been going at it ever since. So it was not a con uh, conscious choice. I want to abandon physics and right. get on ufology. It was, I got to do something to feed the family. And <laughs> well, there's more to it than that. I enjoyed being on the mm -hmm. stage. I'm a ham. I'm a true Leo. Uh, you know, and I found that my memory then at least was very good. Mm -hmm. And I found that there, you know, there weren't any good arguments against my conclusions that some UFOs were alien spacecraft that were dealing with a cosmic water gate. Right. Mm -hmm. And that it's the biggest story of the millennium. And I, I'm not a wishy-washy guy. I'm not an apologist ufologist. I tell it like it is. Mm -hmm. And I mention that not to brag, but to mm -hmm. encourage other people. It's okay. I've given over 700 lectures in all 50 states, uh, 10 provinces, 18 other countries. I only had 11 hecklers. <laughs> and two of them were drunk. <laughs> and I'm told you'd get more than that if you talked about sports, religion, or politics. That is very true. Mm -hmm. That's it's... what people tell me who do. <laughs> so, it... you know, it's easy. Everybody can do it. <laughs> I, I tell you, I learned a lesson in fifth grade. Uh -huh. uh, have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. I think that is one of my uh, favorite quotes by you. I, I was watching um, the, uh, when you received the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award at the uh, MUFON conference, I, I believe it was, at uh, the UFO um, Congress. And uh, you, you mentioned that anecdote uh, of you being a schoolboy 
and I I've found it to be, uh, you know, it it, it kind of sums up your career studying and investigating all these things related with flying saucers and uh, alien abductions. Let me ask you something, because we were talking about the uh, Cosmic Watergate, and you mentioned this a few minutes ago. Uh, you worked in projects that required secrecy, so you understand the, the importance of secrecy. But yeah, you also I, all my projects were classified. But they, weren't also... black, they weren't black projects. Okay. <laughs> that is, uh, they, they weren't totally out of view of anybody. When I worked right. at General Electric on nuclear airplanes, the sign on the door said Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department. But the work was classified. Right, right. Uh, um, and, and you said that, you know, it makes you angry when, you know, the, the government lies about UFOs. But I guess my question to you is, where do we draw the line? How can the government go about it if they're trying to maintain secrecy? Is it better that they just not tell us, period? Or would you prefer... Well, they haven't told us much. Right. <laughs> Let's face it. <laughs> That's but, true. Well, I, I'm not in favor of releasing everything. I've never mm -hmm. said that I was. Uh, I follow, if you're dealing with classified material, you're careful what you say, and you don't release classified material. Right. Uh, but I, so I'm not expecting them to dump all the goodies out there. The, the legitimate security aspect here is, for example, mm -hmm. suppose we have learned something from recovery of a crash saucer at Roswell or mm -hmm. Aztec or the Plains of St. Augustine, some new aspect of technology that would enable us to build a, a better flying vehicle. Yeah. Uh, or a new technique for detecting flight of vehicles in the atmosphere besides radar, let's say. Should we put that out on the table if the Russians and Chinese and everybody else don't put out what they know? I don't think so. Uh, you know, there's been a conflict going on for as long as man has been able to fight, which means as long as he's still around, you know, bigger spears, stronger shields. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't give your enemies uh, a handle on taking you down. True. If yeah. you can help it. But I do think that it's about time we started recognizing. Uh, let's have the queen and the pope announce that indeed, the evidence is overwhelming that planet Earth is being visited by intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft, and we're going to hold international conferences on the philosophic, economic, technological, mm -hmm. psychological aspects mm -hmm. of this. Uh, what would happen? The church attendance would go up, mental hospital admissions would go up, the stock market <laughs> would go down. But I think one of the biggest things that would happen, and that's one of the reasons for secrecy on everybody's part, mm -hmm. is that there would be a push, especially by the younger generation, which was never alive when there wasn't a space program. Mm -hmm. I can remember when the big professors thought it was absolute nonsense to talk about space wow. travel. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the younger generation would push for a new view of ourselves. Instead of as uh, Canadians, Americans, Greeks, Peruvians, Chileans, whatever, right? As Earthlings, mm -hmm. obviously from an alien viewpoint, we are all Earthlings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't seem to like that very much, and nobody in power wants to give up power. That's what nationalism is: power for a small group of people to run a larger group of people. Mm -hmm. So I can understand that attitude. On the other hand, as a great grandfather, I'm concerned about the future of the planet. Mm -hmm. And I'm very much concerned that the military budget this year is a trillion dollars. And 
several thousand children died yesterday of preventable disease or starvation. Uh, you know, I can understand aliens thinking of us as a primitive society whose mm -hmm. major activity is tribal warfare. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what kids learn in school today, to tell you the truth, but in World War II, we killed 50 million of our own kind. We destroyed 1,700 cities. I get a real kick when people say, well, why don't they just land on a White House lawn and say, take me to your leader? Right. Well, it's a no-fly zone for one thing. Mm -hmm. And I hate to tell people this, but the President of the United States does not speak for 7 billion Earthlings. True. Doesn't always speak for 309 million Americans. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's not as simple as it sounds. And there are vested interests who don't want to give up power. Uh, wow. So it's a much more complicated issue um, could that people I, would have you believe. Sorry. Um, could I just ask on that note then, um, if we were to accept the idea that, um, you know, aliens have and do? do continuously visit us or maybe even live amongst us, um, what would the reason or what would, what's the motivation and benefit for them to be here? The aliens, or for the government to act as silly the, the aliens. <laughs> what, what, what would they get out of it, or what well, are they trying to achieve? Okay, I, I, I think uh, in my book, Flying Saucers in Science, I think I have a list of 20 reasons for okay. coming here. You know, they're radio broadcasters with a weekly show, Idiocy in the Boondocks, you know, uh, gas food lodging, next exit. They're being punished, spend a week near Earth, that's punishment to last a lifetime. <laughs> you can think of all kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, let me give you two two more important ones. Mm -hmm. One is uh, a simple word, quarantine. Uh, mm -hmm. We have joined the nuclear age. We know now, which we didn't back, say, 1930, that most of the energy in the universe is produced by nuclear fusion in the stars. Mm -hmm. We didn't even know there was such a thing as fusion at that time. The sun's a mass of burning gas, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's a matter of fact. Hydrogen everywhere. <laughs> Uh, yeah, hydrogen everywhere, <laughs> right, indeed. <laughs> and the kicker is that we are in a position to use our knowledge of fusion technology. I worked on a study of fusion propulsion for deep space travel way back in 1962, for goodness sakes. That's impressive. Uh, <laughs> it really is. What I'm saying is we are a threat to the neighborhood. Okay. I think they're here to make sure we don't take our brand of friendship, everybody else calls it hostility, out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and every society has always had as its primary, well, supposed to have as its primary responsibility, the well-being of its citizenry. I'm mm -hmm. not saying everybody does that, but I'm saying that that means you've got to be wary of a surprise attack, a Pearl Harbor, if mm -hmm. you will, in outer space. So I think there, there's, that's a primary reason. Make sure these idiots don't use their technology to come and bother us because I don't think anybody out there would want us out there. We mm -hmm. haven't grown up. Um, Primitive society is not a trivial statement. Yeah. Uh, there's another thing that most people don't think of. Uh, most people seem, at least in my findings, seem to be unaware that the Earth is the densest planet in the solar system. To mm -hmm. which people say, who cares? Aren't all the planets the same? No, they're not. A cubic foot of Earth weighs more than a cubic foot of any of the other planets. Okay. And you say, so what? 
Well, that means there are more heavy metals here, and heavy metals are mm-hmm. rare in the universe because we know by studying the spectrum of stars. And things like osmium, rhenium, platinum, oh, and uranium and gold, much heavier than lead, all these things. Osmium is twice as dense as lead. And you say, well, so what? Well, these elements are rare in the neighborhood, and some of them have very special properties, good high temperature strength, resistance oxidation, a whole bunch of things. Um, they may have been mining this and stealing the goodies. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. an awful lot of people yeah. went west to look for gold True. when the gold rush days were on in Alaska and California and Australia, other places. Uh, heavy metals get people's attention. Mm-hmm. That's a funny way to put it. but yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, And so, for all we know, they've been stealing the goodies for years and we didn't care. Yeah. Let, let's face it. You know what uranium was used for 100 years ago to make yellow coloring agents for dinner tableware. <laughs> uh, wow. Certainly, we didn't know anything about fission, nuclear stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, we didn't even discover the neutron until 1932. But what I'm getting at is, why do people travel anywhere? If you go to uh, O'Hare Airport in Chicago, for example, is everybody there for the same reason? No, of course not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, somebody or people are there to have fun. Right. Some are prisoners being taken to prison. I mean, who knows? So as soon as you solve the problem of getting here from there, mm-hmm. then you can have all kinds of reasons. And the kicker here is that unlike those who have said that everything was created in 4004 B.C., on a Thursday afternoon, I think it was, uh, I think the planet's been around for over 4 billion years. Okay. And so plenty of time for somebody else to have started sooner than we have right? in getting on this technological kick. In other words, we just learned about fusion mm-hmm. within my lifetime. Uh, others may have known for a billion years. Yeah. And remember, it was only in the 20s that we realized that there was another galaxy, many other galaxies besides our own. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our picture, our understanding of the neighborhood has grown greatly. Uh, and I, I have one of my mantras is that technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. In other words, the future is not an extrapolation of the past. Yeah. Uh, and I'll surprise you by saying, I don't even use a slide rule anymore. And I've talked to some audiences who say, what's a slide rule, Stan? Well, that's what people use to make calculations before pocket calculators were right. available. <laughs> mm-hmm. Progress comes from doing things differently. Yeah. So we're a very young civilization. I know there are people who say all the thinking people in the universe are here on planet Earth. I don't believe it for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have the evidence from ufology to say that, look, there are other guys coming here from somewhere. They don't have license plates so, you know, on their vehicles that tell us where they're from. Yeah. But uh, people tend to forget Within 54 light years of here, there are about uh, 2,000 stars Wow! within a mere 54 light years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I get a kick out of how the SETI people, and you use S-E-T-I, it's supposed to stand for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. I say it stands for Silly Effort to Investigate. <laughs> I did see. There's I did nobody see coming here, but there are guys ones. out there, smart guys, who are sending radio signals, and all we got to do is put up the antenna, keep listening, and 
we'll discover life out there. Yeah. They're not coming here, of course. Can't do that. If they were, they'd want to talk to us, <laughs> say some of these people. Can you imagine why you would send out radio signals using the same technology that, you know, we just learned how to use in 1901? Mm -hmm. First long-distance radio. And yeah. living in, I'm a dual citizen. I can complain about both Canada and the United <laughs> States government. But, nice. Uh, the first long-distance radio signals were received in Newfoundland uh, in oh. 1901. Wow. Uh, Marconi. Uh, I didn't know a smart guy. And he proved something else. Uh, I said about progress come from doing things differently. Everybody knew that Marconi was wrong. That you couldn't send a radio signal from England to the New World because, you idiot, it's a round planet and radio waves move in straight lines. Mm -hmm. So you go a couple hundred miles and the signal runs into the planet and it won't go past it. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out um, Marconi had done his homework and found that you'd be much farther apart than a few hundred miles and still get signals. But the kicker was there was something he didn't know, which made it all possible. <laughs> the ionosphere, a level in the uh, stratosphere mm -hmm. that reflects radio waves. Mm -hmm. And what we don't know is where the future progress comes from, what we will learn. So anyway, what, what I'm trying to say that I can imagine a lot of reasons for coming here, but first and foremost, protect your own society against the primitives like us who are hell-bent on killing others. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a trillion dollars is a pretty good-sized budget. For military. <laughs> Not bad. I wouldn't mind having up that shopping budget. <laughs> yeah, I'll take 1% of that. Um, so what do you think of um, the ideas and theories that people put out there, which, um, well, I know a few people who say basically that aliens are visiting, you know, out of benign motivations they're here to impart their knowledge or wisdom to protect us and you know they're here looking out for our interests well, i what? think that's dreaming yeah <laughs> I, I, I think that's wishful I mean, thinking it, it, look wishful thinking yes that's nice wouldn't it be nice if they would we listen to them Probably i mean not. you don't give three-year-olds loaded guns to play with except yeah. maybe in texas but that's that's another <laughs> story <you know? laughs> uh, who would trust us with advanced technology Mm -hmm. What true. have we done that would give anybody any reason to think that we will behave in a responsible fashion? Yeah. I lived through World War II. Uh, you know, you talk about, I, I get into the nuclear world because I'm a nuclear physicist, but you talk about bombing, for example. And the clear proof of how rapidly we advance technology, in 1944... A big bomb was a 10-ton blockbuster, 10 tons of dynamite. Mm -hmm. And it took a big B-29 to carry it. We dropped a lot of them, make a pretty big hole in the ground. That was in 1944. Mm -hmm. 1945, uh, five, 1945, we dropped our first, or set off our first atomic bomb. It released the energy of 15,000 tons of TNT. Wow. But we kept going because we're good, smart guys, in 1952, we released our, set off our first hydrogen bomb, mm -hmm. our nuclear fusion device. That released the energy of 10 million tons of TNT. Mm -hmm. The wow. fireball was three miles wide. And the Russians, within a few years, set off one that released the energy of 
50 million tons of TNT. One bomb. That scares the heck out of me. And the thing is, when you test nuclear weapons and you realize we have exploded, we Earthlings uh, have exploded 2,000 nuclear weapons on this planet. Some small, some big, you know, a a whole mix. Mm -hmm. 2,000. Now, if you were an alien, what would you think about these people down here? We made a mess of the planet. Uh, you wouldn't come and tell us we wouldn't listen for one thing. Right. <laughs> How to live a better life. Uh, does anybody honestly believe that we would say, oh, yes, verily, we, I think that's very good advice. We'll do what you say. We'll get rid of all these weapons. We'll stop wasting our money on bombers and bombs and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the nuclear world has produced, uh, I better say, something good. Uh, <laughs> Plenty of good things. <laughs> when it comes to propulsion, which is one of the major objections, you can't get here from their stand, don't you know that? I've heard people tell me that. Right. No, I don't know that. I think you can get here from there. But look at the path that the Navy has taken, the U.S. Navy. In World War II, submarines were very important. Some mm-hmm. of ships in the North Atlantic and in the Pacific. Uh, they, but they could only stay underwater for about a day. They needed air for the for the turbine engines. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> not much of it down there, folks. <laughs> uh, and so we developed nuclear-powered submarines that can go around the planet entirely, mm-hmm. all the way around the in the water, wow. without coming to the surface, wow. which is quite remarkable. And we also, since then, first one was about 1956. Mm-hmm. And we've made them big enough so that they can carry a Polaris or other missiles. And the reason for doing this, if the Russians were to attack us, we could retaliate because they can't knock out our submarines because they don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. A little hard to find in that ocean. <laughs> but we've gone a step farther, directly related to my notions, and that is we have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers that can operate for, believe it or not, eight years wow. without refueling. Wow. Years. That's crazy. Wow. I thought uh, you were going to say hours. Quite remarkable. <laughs> well, they carry uh, the analogy here, and the point I'm trying to make, uh-huh. is that the nuclear-powered motherships, will, if you will, can come here from other stars, yeah. and they carry a whole bunch of little Earth excursion modules, as I call them, just like the aircraft carrier carries several dozen small airplanes, but can operate for, what, two hours without refueling, something like that. Mm-hmm. There's a direct analogy here. The ones that crash aren't the motherships. Mm-hmm. They didn't just come here from Zeta Reticuli, my favorite place to come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, the motherships did. Different environment. Uh, you'd expect them to use a different technology, just, just as the aircraft carrier isn't worth a darn in the sky. And the mm-hmm. little airplanes aren't worth uh, anything on the water. <laughs> you know? uh, from your studies, so, would you say that UFOs are nuclear, or that's just one of the possibilities uh, that, well, that you I, have found? Well, I'd say the ones moving in between the stars might very well be fusion-powered devices. Okay. Uh, the ones in the atmosphere, uh, there aren't enough reports of a lot of radioactivity associated with them. And I think they probably work, you know, sort of like a golf cart. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
electric power. You plug it in, charge it up, zip around for a while, and plug it in and charge it up again. <laughs> right. Uh, a magneto-aerodynamic propulsion system, which sounds fancy, and I was surprised, quite frankly, when I spent that three months with McDonnell Douglas that I thought would be a lifetime, but wasn't. <laughs> I did have a literature search done on government reports Use only government, not the open scientific literature, mm -hmm. using one key word, magneto-aerodynamics. Mm -hmm. And much to my surprise, I got 900 references. Oh, wow. wow. 90% were classified. Oh, wow. So there was somebody spending a lot of money mm -hmm. on looking at plasmas around aircraft moving in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And you can solve all the problems of high-speed flight. You can control lift, drag, mm -hmm. heating, sonic boom production, and radar profile. Wow. That's kind of neat to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm not saying I could go down to Walmarts and buy one tomorrow. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I know how much it costs to develop really new technology. When I was working on nuclear airplanes way back in 58, same time that I read my first book on UFOs, mm -hmm. that year we at General Electric spent $100 million. Wow. That's on crazy. Our project, we employed, would you believe, 3,500 people, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists. Wow. So we're not talking about six professors and right. 20 grad students. Right. Yeah. It's a massive effort. And a lot of people don't realize that academia is not the only place where research and development gets done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wow. Uh, I should say. <laughs> now, what is your opinion on, on somebody that, that became very um, prominent in the uh, UFO scene in the late 80s, early 90s, and that's um, Bob Lazar, who, who claimed to have worked in Area 51, and he gave a lot of detailed you know, information uh, as far as the well, type of research that he did. Detailed. Well, I, I kept getting asked about him. Mm -hmm. Back then, because as a nuclear physicist, and he was claiming to be a nuclear physicist, right. degrees from MIT and Caltech, mm -hmm. two top technical schools in the country, uh, two of the best in the world. And so I did a lot of checking because I was getting asked about him. I right. don't like to give answers unless I have facts in hand. Well, I checked with MIT, five different people, and you never went there. Uh, mm. I checked with Caltech. They never heard of him there. I checked with his high school. George Knapp, uh, newsman in yeah. uh, Las Vegas, right. uh, who was the first to break the Lazar story, uh, gave me the name of his high school, and I called them. Mm -hmm. so, you know, nothing was checking out, so oh, wow. I checked, and to make a long story short, I found out that uh, he finished in the bottom third of his high school class. He had one science course, chemistry, graduated in August, no less. Wow. There's no way he could have been admitted to MIT mm -hmm. or Caltech. Oh, wow. He needed to be in a top or 20 percent. He also had claimed publicly in uh, the little alien in uh, Rachel, Nevada. Yeah. Larry King and I had a cup of coffee there together. <laughs> wow. And anyway, he claimed there he did a question and answer session and somebody asked him, can you name any of your professors? Uh -huh. He said, well, let me see now. Um, Bill Duxler, uh, Caltech Physics. Well, being a member of the American Physical Society, I immediately looked at my directory. Mm -hmm. I'm in it. Bob wasn't, but and Duxler was, so I contacted him. Mm -hmm. 
Turns out he never taught at Caltech. Oh, wow. He oh, that's taught terrible. at Pierce Junior College, which is less than 40 miles away. Oh, boy. But uh, intellectually, it's a little further than that. Right. And uh, he was a little irked that somebody was using his name, and Bob, he yeah. checked, and Bob had taken a course under him, a night school course, at the same time that he was supposedly at MIT, 2,500 miles away. And quite frankly, if you can go to MIT, you don't go to Pierce Junior College. <laughs> I've spoken to Pierce. I'm not saying anything bad about Right. Him. No, I, I understand. Um, so basically with Bob Lazar, he was talking about area. stuff up. It definitely sounds like it, uh, when, with the information you, or lack of information, <laughs> I should say, that you found on him. Um, but was there any anything there that was... Um, True, and and everything he said, as far as uh, you know, Area Fifty One. Well, obviously. not everything was a lie. No, he mm -hmm. it was listed in the phone book, but after his name, it said K slash M, which stands for Kirk Meyer, mm -hmm. which is a subcontractor as opposed to the lab. And he worked out at the Clinton D. Anderson Maison Physics Facility. The longer name than that. It's unique in the world, a certain kind of accelerator. Mm -hmm. And so there were professors who came there who couldn't bring their grad students with them for cheap labor, and Bob uh, worked out there. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's not a stupid fool or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I've never said he was. But when he described in Phoenix uh, in February, he did a thing, his first really public appearance with uh, George Knapp, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. I was in the audience, and... Uh, they didn't ask any of the questions I wanted to ask, but more importantly, when he described his back engineering work, mm -hmm. half a dozen people came up to me afterward who told me it sure didn't sound like a scientist to them, and I agreed with them. Oh, wow. Oh, but there wasn't a chance for me to... He, he and George left right after the talk. Mm. And, uh, you know, so what can I say? Right. Uh, he, he runs a business in Michigan yeah. selling equipment. Uh, to people who want to buy certain kinds of equipment and more power to them, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But then, then but he isn't again. telling the truth about. Yeah. Uh, he's a businessman. He's not a physicist. <laughs> you know, sharp guy, as I said. Uh, now, Mr. Freeman, one of the cases that caught your attention and you dedicated a lot of time to was the Betty and Barney Hill um, case, uh, which is a, a very, very popular case. It was the, the I believe it's, it's considered the first uh, documented case of abduction. Um, how did... Uh, yeah. Documented is the key word there. Nobody mm -hmm. else had said anything and they didn't try to go public either, but it just happened. It's a long story, but yeah, go on. How, um, uh, what was it about this case? I mean, obviously, you know, I, I wasn't around at that time, but were there a lot of these uh, stories no, uh, popping up? not at that time, there weren't. Uh, and what made the case special, mm -hmm. uh, among other things, is two, two very important things. The quality of the people involved, mm -hmm. Betty Hill was a social worker. Right. Uh, you know, head of a department in the state of uh, New Hampshire. Uh, she didn't sweep the floor. She was a social worker. Mm -hmm. I've got nothing against floor sweepers, but still. <laughs> uh, Barney was on the Governor's Civil Rights Commission, uh, worked for the post office. but And it was a mixed marriage, which took a lot of courage back right. then. Barney was black, Betty white. Right. We don't think of it that much now, but back then, New Hampshire, uh, of course. not a common event. But the other thing is, 
that they wound up because of problems that they had. Uh, Barney developed ulcers and so forth. After this event, they they were missing two hours. They didn't right. know what had happened, but they got home two hours later from seeing this thing in the sky over New Hampshire, less than 200 feet away, incidentally. Uh, not Jupiter, as some people have tried to say it must have been. Uh, Jupiter doesn't have a double row of windows around it. Isn't one and a half times the size of the old man of the mountain, the famous natural uh, formation, which unfortunately crashed and fell into a lake. No, it didn't. <laughs> there, but uh, and it was 48 feet high, so one and a half times they estimated 72 feet. That's not Jupiter. I mean, what can I say? Right. A- anyway, uh, Barney developed ulcers, and his doctor, this is two years later by now, uh, said, Barney, I can't do anything more for you. I think you need to see a psychiatrist, because it was believed that stress you know, was a major factor in causing bad effects from ulcers. Mm-hmm. And he wound up, fortunately, very fortunately, with Dr. Benjamin Simon, who was a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, who I would have ranked him in retrospect as the top expert in the world on post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. He ran a hospital, which you believe that had 3,000 beds. This is after World War II. Oh, wow. For war veterans who'd had serious problems. You know, your your buddy's head gets blown off next mm-hmm. to you while you're in action. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of post-traumatic. to adjust yeah. that later, you know, why him and not me and mm-hmm. so forth and so on. So, and Dr. Simon was in the movie, Let There Be Light, that the Army prepared reviewing his techniques using medical hypnosis, inducing amnesia at the end of the session. Mm-hmm. I. Uh, mm-hmm. He was a world-class expert at this. He was the man in the movie, as a matter of fact. Wow. And so he didn't know anything about flying saucers, but yeah. he knew uh, one heck of a lot about people mm-hmm. and how to, they'd had a traumatic experience. Let's see if we can uncover it. So they each had 10 sessions mm-hmm. separately, not together, but they had amnesia induced at the end of each session. Oh, wow. And they didn't want to go public. Right. But somebody had secretly taped a little talk they gave to a small group of people after they had gone through this hypnosis stuff. And Betty, out of the blue, gets a call from a reporter for the Boston paper wanting to interview them. About what? About your UFO experience. Wow. We don't want to talk about that. They figured she thought she'd lose her job. Barney Mm -hmm. would lose his job. So can I just double check? And there's the medical considerations. Um, can I just double check? Did you say um, amnesia was induced after each um, hypnosis session? So, right, with, and they were separate. Remember, yeah. that means they couldn't talk to each other uh-huh. after the session. So they didn't recall, which is very important, their own um, what they themselves said during yeah, those sessions. Yeah, getting influenced. So each other. I imagine getting a call from right. a reporter about something you don't remember is quite bizarre. Well, they'd already had the sessions, uh-huh. but they didn't want anybody in the outside world to know about it. Fortunately, okay. as it turned out, the newspaper article uh, got a very good response. Okay. And then they, uh, John Fuller was in the area. He did the book, The Interrupted Journey. But before mm-hmm. that, he'd done a book on incident at Exeter, New Hampshire, which had happened uh after the Hill experience, but 
uh, and their 50th anniversary is being celebrated. I'll be there in September, as a oh, matter of wow. fact. Uh, oh, that's cool. Uh, right around Labor Day weekend. Uh, and Fuller, they worked out a deal, and uh, Dr. Simon let him listen to the tape recordings of the sessions. Mm-hmm. And his book, The Interrupted Journey, got published in a number of languages. It was a bestseller in many places, a big article in Look Magazine. It got very serious and decent response. Wow. Oh, there have always been some nasty, noisy negativists. I'm not saying it was 100% accepted. Nothing right. about UFOs 100% <laughs> accepted, yeah. as far as I can tell. But Dr. Simon's expertise mm-hmm. was extraordinarily important in that story. He had a long history of working with people who'd had traumatic experiences that needed to be opened up and reintegrated, if you will. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the man to do it. You know, there's still people coming back from war with post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, what do you make of uh, their experience on board the craft? You know, they describe being separated, taken se- to separate rooms and undergoing these kind of medical procedures. You know, you, you interacted with them and spent a lot of time with them. And obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're a brilliant man yourself. What do you make of, of these aliens taking Betty and Barney and subjecting them to, to these procedures? What was their goal, do you think? Well, I consider it a catch and release uh activity. Mm -hmm. They were checking out their physiology. They were curious. Somebody was writing a handbook on these stupid aliens on Earth or something. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I don't know. You know, we may be somebody's colony. Mm -hmm. They dumped all their bad boys and girls here, and that's why we're so nasty (laughs) to each other. Who knows? Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of... Or maybe grad students doing their thesis work. (laughs) No, I cut up frogs when I was in high school right. because I wanted to eat a frog. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, I've I mean, eaten frogs like since. But <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously another another uh, interesting characteristic of the Betty and Barney Hill case was the uh, the star map that uh, Betty recalled yes. uh, during hypnosis. Can you tell us a little bit about that map? Well, she's reliving a portion of this experience and uh she asks the leader of this crew, uh, where are you guys from? I know you're not from around here, understatement of the month. <laughs> <laughs> he shows her this, what I'll call a three-dimensional star map uh, mm-hmm. model, three feet on a side, points of light connected with some kind of lines, uh, trade routes, occasional expeditions, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she's looking at this thing. Uh, looking up at it, Betty Short, uh, not as short as they were, but anyway. <laughs> uh, and, well, where are you on the map, she says. Wise guy uh-huh. alien says, do you know where you are? No, I don't know anything about astronomy. Mm-hmm. How can I tell you where I'm from if you don't know where you're at? End of discussion. <laughs> well, fortunately, Dr. Simon, who must have been wondering what is going on here, uh, asked Betty if she could remember the map. She said yes. And he gave her a post-hypnotic suggestion that mm-hmm. if you can remember it accurately, please draw it later on, which she did at home. And she brought it in, and it's in mm-hmm. the first book. And it, uh, it, I was the first to publish about that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, a woman, a brilliant woman, to, uh, trying to identify the, the uh, stars in the map, mm-hmm. a woman named Marjorie Fish, mm-hmm. met with Betty. She was a schoolteacher in Ohio. And at first she was dubious because she couldn't believe that aliens would look anything like us. 
Uh, but they did. Anyway, she checked with Betty on things, and she wound up building more than 20 different three-dimensional models of our local galactic neighborhood oh, to wow. see if she could find a 3D pattern, mm-hmm. walk around it and see, see the mm-hmm. angle oh, changes wow. and mm-hmm. so forth, that matched the two-dimensional one that Betty had drawn. Yeah, and she had no luck. I kept reducing the number of stars in the in the volume and so forth. And finally, found one and only one pattern that matched angle for angle, line length for line length. It was able to identify the base stars, Zeta One and Zeta Two Reticuli. That's the constellation of Reticulum, mm-hmm. which means the net in Latin. I'm told I don't speak Latin, but still. Does anybody? I don't think so. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, what's special here, they're just down the street, 39.3 light years away. And much more importantly, from each other. They're 30 times closer to each other than the sun is to the next star over. In other words, we're out in the boondocks. Wow. Mm-hmm. Zeta wow. reticulans uh, have next door neighbors. Mm-hmm. The other star is visible from a planet around the other one all day long. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's how close they are. Yeah. And certainly there would be an an important incentive to develop interstellar travel mm-hmm. when you got a neighborhood yeah. just down the street, a, a neighbor. So it makes it very exciting. And I uh, was the first to publish about that in probably not lamented Saga magazine way back in the early 70s. I had been asked by the head of APRO, a co- woman named Coral Lorenzen, Mm-hmm. Uh, if I would help Marjorie, and I didn't really help, but she wanted to ask a lot of questions, and I, as a nuclear physicist, and Coral knew me and so forth, uh, and I visited Marjorie because I was traveling all the time, and mm-hmm. uh, I gave her encouragement, and I published the first article about her work in Saga magazine, and then I convinced the editor, Terrence Dickinson, of Astronomy magazine to do an article about her work, and it got more response than anything they'd ever published. Oh, wow. And they ran, they ran letters in response for a full year, and then they put out a 32-page full-color booklet to Zeta Reticuli. Oh, wow. Wow. And then and sold 10,000 copies almost immediately, which is unheard of for this kind of thing. And then uh, Carl Sagan, my University of Chicago classmate for mm-hmm. three years, uh, his lawyers threatened to sue them because his name was on the front with several other astronomers who responded to the article. Mm-hmm. And they they got upset, and the, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse because I stimulated the original publication. Mm-hmm. And I wound up with uh, more than 15,000 copies of this 32-page full-color book. They're long gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, wish I had another 15,000. I'd sell them all. <laughs> <laughs> um but it's an indication of interest that that's the point yeah. that I'm making there. Uh, that uh, a lot of people responded. Speaking of Carl Sagan, I know uh, I was reading that he had a, a, I guess, a difference of opinion as far as you know Betty's uh, map, and he called it, uh, and I'm I'm paraphrasing poorly, so I apologize, but he called it more or less just like a random uh, alignment uh, of yeah, chance. I know. And uh, he and I talked about it. I met with him uh, a year before he died. Uh, oh, wow. Speaking at Cornell. And we, he also had written an article in Parade Magazine, which he got things wrong. And, uh, yeah, well, Carl, shoot first, ask questions later, kind of his <laughs> attitude. Uh, I see. He, in two different books, said 
there are interesting UFO sightings that aren't reliable. That's a true statement. Mm -hmm. There are reliable mm -hmm. UFO sightings, some that aren't interesting. But there are no interesting and reliable sightings, and that's totally false. I mentioned that study earlier. Look at the reliability. The more reliable the sighting, the more likely to be unexplainable. Mm -hmm. But right. Carl didn't cite any evidence. Uh, he did meet with Betty and Barney once with Dr. Simon, as a matter of fact. So I give him credit for that. Uh, and he had me in his house, and we had coffee and cake. Uh, <laughs> I was speaking there. And, uh, you know, old, it's there's certain parallels. Right. We were both born in 1934, and we grew up in adjacent towns in New Jersey, high school rivals. We didn't know each other. Oh, wow. But uh, Rahway, New Jersey, and Linden, New Jersey, and nobody's ever heard of either one. But <laughs> well, I would I would have loved to have been a, a fly on the wall for for your conversation with Carl uh, about about <laughs> some of these topics. I can only imagine how interesting and fascinating that that must have been. You know, the the little anecdote that <laughs> made me chuckle a little was. Um, I don't know, Friedman, um, Mr. Friedman can probably explain this one better, but it was the incident with um, Philip J. Class. I don't know if you can give oh, yeah. the, stories, um, the listeners a little story about that. <laughs> well, there are a lot of little stories about Phil. Uh, um, he challenged me. You mean about the documents? Uh, yeah, yeah, about the comparisons, yeah. you know, the lexicographic, lexicographic, sorry, comparisons. Oh, yes. Uh, Carl called him a lexicographic expert, not knowing that at that time Phil had already paid me for proving him wrong, it was very straightforward. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the three documents that I say are genuine about the Majestic 12 documents, mm -hmm. uh, a group ostensibly set up by Professor, uh, President Truman okay. in 1947 to deal with flying saucers. Yeah. And one of the documents we got many years later, um, the typeface is the large pica type. Mm -hmm. Not the small elite type. I don't know if anybody knows about typewriters anymore. But <laughs> well, there were everybody had one. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, and uh, Phil challenged me. We'd been arguing back and forth for umpteen years at the time. Perhaps I hadn't realized that this document is done in pica type, but the tradition at the National Security Council it says NSC on top of the document. Mm -hmm. was the small elite type, and he had 10 samples to prove it. And he challenged me to find any other uh, documents meeting certain criteria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, not just the typeface, but it had to be pica type, but so certain other things. The document had to be signed and so forth. Uh, and he would give me $100 each for every genuine document meeting his criteria up to a maximum of 10. Mm -hmm. And he generously gave me 60 days. Well, I was planning on going to the Eisenhower Library. Mm -hmm. uh, the stuff of importance, this document came at the time that uh, Eisenhower was president. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I went, uh, and I quickly found 14 documents that met all his criteria. <laughs> the pegotype's noticeably larger, so it's not hard to separate out that way. Yeah. And uh, I sent him copies of the documents and an invoice for $1,000, 10 <laughs> times 100 and he paid me. Nice. That's he great. He told everybody about challenging me, but nobody about paying me, interestingly <laughs> enough. His papers are at the American Philosophical Society Library in Philadelphia. Wow. And there is no Friedman file, even though we corresponded for 20 years. And I wow. wonder why. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing, because I double-checked this, 
uh, a couple of interesting things. One is that he'd never been to the Eisenhower Library before or after he made that claim. Okay. okay. Secondly, the Eisenhower Library had 250,000 pages uh-huh. of National Security Council materials. To generalize from 10 to 250,000 is typical of the intellectual bankruptcy of the pseudoscience of anti-ufology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the way that has a ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> That was typical of the nasty, noisy, negativist attacks mm. on every aspect of ufology. Yeah. And let me ask you, have you encountered or have, have you found any other cases that have caught your attention, like uh, Betty and Barney Hill's case, uh, you know, like Travis Walton? Have, are there any other abduction cases that you feel strongly well, are? Well, certainly the Travis Walton case is a, a good one. And mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, uh, there's a movie that just came out called Travis. Oh, really? I saw it for the first time in Arizona a couple months ago. Oh, no way. Uh, and they used some footage, which may get taken out, I don't know, from my movie, UFOs Are Real. Mm-hmm. And it's listed on my website, uh, www.stantonfriedman.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 90 minutes long. Uh, and I, it, what they used from me, besides my commenting during the making of this film, was a piece that was done back in 1978. I interviewed Travis mm-hmm. uh, out in the Arizona desert. Mm-hmm. was in his home. Uh, interviewed uh, other people involved in the case. Uh, talked to people in town about Travis. I'm very satisfied that he's upright, straightforward, honest, yeah. decent, you know, all those other good words. Yeah, definitely. So it's a case that I'm totally sold on. Done on done television programs together. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. um, that's one good abduction case. And of course, the, the person who did most of the work on the book uh, on the story of Betty and Barney Hill was Kathleen Marden, who's Betty's niece. Right. And she did almost all the work on the book. I did write the Star Chat uh, Star Map chapter mm-hmm. uh, and some other stuff. But uh, and Kathy has done a book about abductions again, also listed on my website. Mm-hmm. Uh, several different cases. So, yeah, there are a number of cases uh, that are good, solid cases. Takes an awful lot of work. Mm-hmm. Right. And not everybody was lucky enough to have a Dr. Simon to do the hypnosis work. But uh, James Harder was a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And he has done several cases. Uh, Bud Hopkins in New York has done several cases. Uh, Dr. David Jacobs, who was a professor now retired at Temple University, he did his Ph.D. thesis about UFOs way back in the 70s, a historical look at the question. He's worked with a number of abductees. So I'm not saying all cases. You've got to ask the right question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The question isn't, are all people who claim to have been abducted telling the truth? Mm -hmm. The question is, are any? Mm. Uh, you know, the basketball coach knows most people aren't seven feet tall. He'd be happy to settle for one. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a nuclear guy. Uh, very few isotopes are fissionable. If I want to build a nuclear reactor, I darn well better use the ones that are. Yeah. I don't care about all the ones that aren't. They don't matter. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there are a number of good uh, cases. If you put uh, Kathleen Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N, and Google it, if you will, yeah, and uh, um, you've you'll got find, uh, her books as well. Very smart lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and uh, she was there uh, when Betty called Kathleen's mother. Okay. About seeing the UFO. They didn't know about the abduction part of the story. Yeah. Wow. So that would have been the this sister, way back correct? In 1961, the next day. Yeah. And so she and um, Kathleen and her mother were visiting Betty and Barney within a few days, saw the strange marks on the car and all kinds of other stuff. And before we wrote, she did most of the writing on Captured, uh, she went through, she listened to all the uh, hypnosis sessions. She cross-compared what Betty said and what Barney said when they were in situations where if it was a true story, they should have said the same things. Yeah. And they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Quite remarkable. Uh, most cases haven't had that sort of attention. And an important thing, Dr. Simon, who treated, you know, all these shell shock war veterans, that was the expression that was used back then. They didn't yeah. talk about PTSD, but same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Simon, in writing, has said that the emotional intensity, when Betty and Barney were reliving, not retelling, but yeah. reliving the experience, mm-hmm. the emotional intensity was so great that he had to stop one session each. Oh, wow. It was every bit as intensive as that of the war veterans that he dealt with. Oh, wow. Coming from him, that means something. Yeah. It means a great deal. Yeah. Definitely. You know, not somebody passing by. Hey, does this sound good to you? No, <laughs> not at all. Um, I know and that... So that makes it important. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to ask That's that. Right. Uh, I know that over the years, you know, a lot... There's been a lot of back and forth as to how effective the use of hypnosis is. What, what are your thoughts on hypnosis in cases of um, alien abduction? Well, only if you've got somebody who really knows what he's doing. Uh you know, this is not a game you play. This isn't parlor hypnosis. I took a course in hypnosis myself many years ago and was so pleased when I, you know, I was learning something. My son was a hemophiliac, and people were using hypnosis to help control bleeding, as a matter of fact. But oh, wow. Then he, the, the class instructor, had regressed uh, one of the people in the class when she was... 25, then when she was 20 and 15, and then when she was 8. And he had her re, uh, return, uh, relive her 8th birthday. And she suddenly burst into tears. Mm. It turns out her father had died on her 8th birthday. Oh, wow. And I was so glad that here was the, the instructor could handle that situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This was a very distressed young lady. Mm-hmm. So this is not the kind of thing that should be done casually. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to be done carefully. And hypnosis is not the magic road to truth. Uh, and always you have to recognize that people aren't perfect observers either. Mm-hmm. You can't get out better information than went in. You know, uh, and so uh, if there are many cases, of course, I should add, good cases. Right. That we get the information from without hypnosis being used and where people remember everything. Yeah. The reason mm-hmm. that you bring hypnosis into the picture is if there is a time lapse. Mm. Right. You know, somebody is out with her sister. They come on home and her mother says, where have you been? Well, we came directly home. Well, it turns out they were two hours late. Mm-hmm. 
and they didn't have any recollection of what happened during that missing time. Well, now is that's a situation where you want to find somebody who can help you on, you know, lift the lid, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so it's not the magic road to truth. And I certainly am not saying everybody who thinks they've been abducted should be hypnotized. I'm not saying that at all. Mm-hmm. I know that you're also quite proficient in what happened at Roswell. You, you've looked into that case as well. I'm what, the original civilian investigator. And that that is uh, definitely, yeah. That's you were quite the an first, achievement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what can you tell me? I mean, I've, I've read portions of, of Dr. Philip Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. What do you think of what he had Sorry to say? Sorry about that. Really? <laughs> Not a fan of... Uh, well, <laughs> of Philip Corso, I take listening, it? if they... If if they want to email me, I'll send them a copy of an article I wrote about Corso. Okay. And Lazar, as a matter of fact, two for one. <laughs> Same article. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, well, I, Philip Corso made these grandiose claims mm-hmm. that he'd been asked uh, after he joined uh, General Trudeau at the Pentagon's, the Army's Foreign Technology Division. Mm-hmm. He was given a, a filing cabinet full of Roswell wreckage and asked to make sure that the technology, that somehow this got into the hands of industry without them knowing where it came from, mm-hmm. and all this new technology. And he claimed responsibility for introducing everything from Kevlar yeah. and uh, just a whole bunch of things <laughs> into mm-hmm. the technological world. Well, I met the man, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I did a lot of checking again. Yeah. And it turns out that a couple of things that he was taking credit for, one a guy won a Nobel Prize for, for work done two years before Corso got involved. Oh, wow. Uh, that's not a good sign. Yeah. Not a good place mm-hmm. to start. He tells the story of being at uh, Fort Riley, Kansas, when his bowling buddy thought he'd like to see something, and there's this uh, big container with a body in it and blue fluid and... It was an alien. And, of course, that's an absolute violation of security. But mm-hmm. more importantly, he named a date July 6th, 1947. Well, it doesn't fit with what we know about when the rancher came into Roswell and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, how do you know what the date was? Did you have a diary or notes or something? I was hoping he did because mm-hmm. then we could pin things down. Yeah. Well, I know when I was transferred there. Well, it turns out that was in March or April. He wasn't sure even of that. Oh, boy. And it doesn't fit that there would be a a trucked body from Roswell to Fort Riley on its way to Wright-Patterson. Uh, it's not the direct way. And if there's one thing they had in Roswell, it was airplanes. That was the home. The military group based in Roswell was the most elite military group in the world. They had dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. Only one in the world, only group in the world in wow. 1947 that had access to atomic bombs. Now, this wasn't a bunch of dinks with nothing better to do. Mm-hmm. When the head of the base, Colonel Blanchard, went on to be a four-star general and was vice chief of staff of the United States Air Force when he died of a massive heart attack at the Pentagon. Uh, so we're not talking about a dink here. Right. Uh, and Corso... Uh, added nothing. He made a number of other false claims, too. Mm-hmm. And so it was a wannabe. Oh, he also claimed he was a member of the National Security Council. That's about wow. as high a job as you can get, practically, in the mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. So I checked with the Eisenhower Library. 
Uh, and it turned out not only was he not a member ever of the National Security Council, but he never attended a meeting. No, dear. <laughs> and they keep track of those things. Oh, boy. So when the people can't tell the truth about themselves, mm -hmm. I get very worried of accepting what they say about anything else. <laughs> very no, true. That's Would you awful. Be? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I can believe that people do that, but it's 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 crazy to hear every time you hear about people who, I mean, you know, actually go out and openly lie to people you know you obviously have a, a long career um uh, researching and and talking uh, uh, uh about these topics how have you seen the study of, of flying saucers and aliens change from you know the betty and barney hill days till now have you encountered new challenges for example you know now we have a lot of drones out you know people flying drones and and all these other things have you found, uh, like I said, new challenges in the study of flying saucers? Well, only to deal with the false arguments made by the nasty, noisy negativists. <laughs> uh, the the thing is that I, I try to deal mostly with the large-scale scientific studies rather mm. than individual cases. Because okay. I know there are loads of cases out there. I check at the end of my lectures most of the time, especially, look, over 700 college talks, uh, in a lot of places, uh, mm -hmm. 50 states, 10 provinces, and 18 other countries. I keep busy. Right. Uh, at the end of each lecture, especially at the college ones, I'll ask how many people here believe they've seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer. Mm -hmm. I like the term flying saucer better because all flying saucers are UFOs, not all UFOs are yeah. flying saucers. Correct. You know, uh, yeah. all great-grandfathers are men, not all men are great-grandfathers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> True. Yeah. Uh, and when I ask at the end of my lecture, I'll say, oh, we didn't let the CIA in. It's okay. And I'm not asking for your names. Just raise your hand, and I'll point and count. And the hands go up reluctantly at the beginning. And as I point and count, one, two, three, four, by the time I get over to the far right, I don't know why I go left or right, but that's what I usually do, the hands go up much more quickly. And typically, it's 10% of the people in the audience. Mm -hmm. But then I ask, uh, how many of you reported what you saw? 90% of the hands go down. So I, I've had a lot of experience at seeing how people respond, in other mm. words. And I've done a lot of classroom visits, too. And I've even been in classes where the professor has checked. 80% thought, and of the kids in the class, thought that most people didn't believe in UFOs, and 80% of them did believe in UFOs. Mm -hmm. So the fear of ridicule is mm -hmm. something I try to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, no, and there is something else that's changed. And uh, Today, if you ask young people about UFOs, the most common answer I get is, uh, gee, surely we're not the only ones mm -hmm. in this huge universe. Yeah. They've heard about the Kepler space satellite, mm -hmm. which is an incredible device that has spotted well, literally thousands now of yeah. planets, and it's only looking at a tiny chunk of the sky, about your arm, a fist at arm's length will cover the amount of sky that uh, Kepler can see. Wow. Mm -hmm. But it's an incredibly sensible, sensitive device. Uh, you know, like being able to spot when a butterfly flies in front of a car headlight a mile away kind of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's pretty sensitive. It's um, crazy. And so... Uh, it is now much more taken for granted than it was, say, 60 years ago, that this is not the only solar system. Believe it or not, there were, well, Frank Drake of the SETI program 
uh, a few years ago was saying there might be as many as 8,000 places in the galaxy that could be sending us radio signals. Mm -hmm. Wow. And today, a good bet about the number of planets in the galaxy, just the Milky Way now, <laughs> is more like 8 billion. Wow. So wow. our perception of where we fit in the scheme of things, instead of on top of the heap, I'd say we're at the bottom of the ladder. <laughs> it sounds like it. Jeez. Um, you know, so that's changed. Uh -huh. uh, you know, as long as this is the only solar system and this is the only planet that's got uh, animate life on it, then we're the big shots, aren't we? <laughs> well, turn out that's a little optimistic. <laughs> um, on a slight tangent, um, what do you think of, um, I guess, the, the popular opinion regarding um, interstellar travel, especially, you know, found in movies, TV, and other um, pop culture references, um, wormhole travel uh, that's what they usually show you know on tv um what do you think of that and is that a possibility well frankly uh, it's one of the areas i because i've worked on fission and fusion rockets and stuff like mm -hmm. that and almost none of the ancient academics and fossilized physicists who say you can't get it get there from here uh, or here from there yeah uh, have looked at any of the work uh Wormhole is a convenient science fiction out, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked on fission nuclear rockets that we actually operated, ground-tested, out at the Nevada test site. And the one I worked on had a power level of 1,100 megawatts, which is half the power of Hoover Dam, but it was about seven feet in diameter. Wow. <laughs> and Los Alamos worked on one that had a power level of 4,400 megawatts, twice the power of Hoover Dam, mm -hmm. and a little bigger, a little under eight feet in diameter. That was back in the 60s, mind you. Wow. Of course, when we were successful, they canceled the program. <laughs> but uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I worked on fusion propulsion for deep space travel. Everybody mm -hmm. is going to be curious about how their star works. Yeah. Right. And it turns out that that's nuclear fusion. Mm -hmm. And we just got there then thinking in 1938, our first H-bomb was 1952. Mm -hmm. Not very long ago. There's yeah. a good chance somebody got started before we did. So uh, I would accept fusion as an attractive way to get to the stars. If you use the right stuff in the right way and spend a lot of money, mm -hmm. you need the dough to go. <laughs> uh, you will... You can kick particles out the back end of a fusion rocket that have 10 million times as much energy particles they can get than uh -huh. a chemical rocket. 10 million times. So uh, I'm not saying there isn't something better. Mm -hmm. I would suggest one of, one of the crazy things about the world in which we live is when you go from a big fat atom to a little tiny nucleus, which is at the center of the atom, you go down in size about 10,000 times. Mm -hmm. And you go up in energy about 10 million times, which mm -hmm. is intuitively crazy, but that's the way the universe was created. Don't yeah. blame me for that. Uh -huh. And so when we learn how to handle quarks, which are inside the atoms, we think, uh, and I can't hand you a handful of quarks <laughs> by themselves, uh, we may find another even better way of doing things. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to slip into science fiction wormholes. It sounds clever, you know, when I know that fusion would do the job. Yeah. And 
like I say, we're not advanced enough to be say, well, we're as far ahead as you can get on this kind of thing. That's ridiculous. Yeah, of course. So, um, how long, um, how long roughly would it then take, um, for say well, a craft from zeta one or zeta two reticuli to get to Earth? You know, with, you know, theorizing about what they might have in terms of aircrafts and energy sources. Well. It, 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 I would give you a. Uh, I, I once did a calculation. What, what people forget about Einstein, mm-hmm. he didn't only say the limit is the speed of light. He said a couple of other equally crazy things, which turn out to be true. Okay. That as you get close to the speed of light, yeah. and it sounds weird, Your mass time slows increases. down for things moving that fast. Mm-hmm. How much does it slow down? Well, it depends on how close you get. Mm. Yeah. At 99.99% of the speed of light, you can go 37 light years in six mm-hmm. months pilot time. So you go out, come back, marry your granddaughter's best friend. <laughs> it's the gift of immortality. So and what? we know that Einstein was right because we have particles coming in from outer space, cosmic rays that, that create other particles, and we know that their lifetime is much longer than we would have expected. Okay. So, uh, you know, and it, it, it's, it, I realize it sounds weird. But if I told you about a computer sitting on my desk here, not the most advanced one around, uh, when I started work in industry, they had a whole room full of highly air-conditioned equipment uh, to p- perform fairly straightforward calculations. I got more calculating power here than they did there, and we were paying 700 bucks an hour mm-hmm. for the use of those computers. You know, So uh, a laser, a little over 50 years old. Uh-huh. Who'd have thought that you could do the incredible things you can do with lasers? I could check out at the grocery store. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. what about uh, the the problem of um, mass increase as you near the the speed I'm of light? You mentioned that because I that I'm, my mind is boggled that. about that. <laughs> well, here's the kicker. Um, what Einstein said was, as you uh, get closer to the speed of light, your mass increases. Mm-hmm. So it takes more energy purportedly to accelerate because there's more mass you got to push yeah. around. Yeah. But if you look at nuclear fusion, the beauty of nuclear fusion okay. is you produce, if you use the right stuff in the right way, you produce particles that are born with a huge amount of energy. You're not accelerating then. Mm-hmm. That's how... Charged particles, uh, 10 million times as much energy as in a chemical rocket. They're born that way, mm-hmm. crazy as that might sound. So that isn't a problem. Uh, it, it's going to cost a lot of money to do this. We're not. I am not trying to say, well, you give me six guys and a million bucks and I'll build you one. Nonsense. That's why I mentioned that we were spending $100 million a year at General Electric in 1958. Mm-hmm. And that that was a lot more money then than it is now. Uh, and we didn't successfully fly a nuclear-powered airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So it, it takes money and time and people and smarts. Yeah, but it's possible. Uh, and I talk about this. Uh, there's a chapter in Flying Saucers and Science, www.stantonfriedman.com, which deals with, it actually has a title like, You Can Get Here From There. Mm-hmm. Uh, not easily. None of this stuff is easy. Uh, 
you know, it's like building a, a, an aircraft car that can operate for 18 years without refueling. Yeah. You don't buy yeah. those at Walmart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe in the future sometime. Probably not. It's too big for most stores. <laughs> uh, Mr. Freeman, just a, a couple of more quick questions. One of them, you know, this is a question that I grew up with. Uh, you know, my dad was a big believer in, in UFOs and he used to buy all the books and, um, he would always say, you know, I would love to have an encounter with them. And that was a sentiment. I don't know if you, if you yourself have seen a UFO, but. Nope. No? Okay. I've never seen a neutron either. <laughs> and I used to chase them too. <laughs> real. Very, very valid point. But my question to you is if you were to find yourself, <clears throat> excuse me, um, if you were to find yourself in a position similar to uh, Betty and Barney Hills or Travis Walton, in which you came face-to-face uh, -face with uh, beings from, from another star system, what would be the first thing you would ask him? How would you behave, if, if, if I may uh, ask that question? Well, if, if I had a chance to ask him anything, uh, I would ask, uh, what do you guys want? Hmm. <laughs> what, what, mm -hmm. what, what are you doing here? You you got bad things for us? Are you going to clean the planet and take it over yourself? Uh Mm -hmm. You know, that's always a concern. Right. Uh, I mean, once they look and see what a primitive society we are, yeah. maybe the big boss man says, ah, wipe them out. This is a nice planet. These guys are making a mess out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I'd like to know what they have in store and what are the rules of the game. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard the stories about the nuclear-tipped missiles that were sent offline, yeah. if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The UFO showed up. Yes. Uh, Bob Salas was one of the people who was in charge of one of these facilities. Mm -hmm. And all those guys, incidentally, as you might expect, get psychologically tested and evaluated and so forth. You don't want a guy who can put his finger on the button, so to speak, <laughs> all right. uh, who isn't a stable individual. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be sending us a clear message. Uh, you know, we don't want this. Right. And it happened in the Soviet Union, too, not just here. Uh, so I, I think there may be rules for conduct. Mm -hmm. Maybe they can't just uh, disintegrate everybody on the planet. <laughs> right. Uh, but I'd, my first question would be, what do you want, buddy? Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> Look, it's easy to say, why don't they just tell us how to live at peace with each other? Would we listen to anybody? Right. I don't think so. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've had great men and women, humans <laughs> throughout our history that have kind of directed us in, in, in that fashion, and we don't listen to them. So, I mean, yeah, no, I agree with you. We, we probably would not <laughs> heed their warnings, even if they, if they made them that clear. Uh, Mr. Freeman, I want to thank you so much for your time. You're going to be at the Contact in the Desert Conference over here at Joshua Tree, uh, which takes place May yes. 29th through the 31st. And I see you you have quite the, the schedule lineup. You're going to be doing a lecture, uh, Flying Saucers and Science, an illustrated lecture. Uh, you also have a workshop, the UFO Why Questions, and an intensive the Operation Majestic 12 Controversy. Why don't you tell yeah. people a little bit about what they can expect at Contact in the Desert and, and some of the things you're going to be talking about there? Well, it's going to be a lot of a lot of high-temperature time. Uh, that <laughs> is really out in the desert. <laughs> Seriously. And, uh, yeah, and I, I will do my best to educate, stimulate, uh, answer questions, uh, 
interact. I, I'm not saying that I'm going to accept what everybody else there says. Mm-hmm. No promise to that. Uh, I'm not saying anything bad about anybody there, but I'm just saying that uh, attendance at the conference does not imply uh, acceptance of everything that will be presented as truth or gospel or whatever. There are plenty of liars in the world. I yeah. can't help it. Yeah. Any woman listening to me will know that you can't trust all men. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Not so? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we have one here. Can you trust all men, Genevieve? <laughs> I already can't right. trust you, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're going to take on authority, you better have facts in hand before you open your mouth. Um, that is probably one of the, the truest, most important things that I I take away from uh, what we have discussed uh Mr. Friedman, I want to thank you so much. It's, it, this has been, as I mentioned, a, a really uh, humbling privilege to have you on on our show and talk about all these things. And, and I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. People can find you at your website, correct? StantonFriedman.com. That's right. And That's right. You, there are you two have... Nobel Prize winners named Friedman, incidentally. F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. I'm not one oh. of them. That's right. <laughs> Not yet, I'm sure. Um, but there's links to to your DVDs, your books, articles, a lot of uh, valuable resources for for anyone that wants to, uh, you know, go deeper into these these topics. And I autograph and, all my books, incidentally. Oh, really? Well, I'll awesome. be I'll be ordering one. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Thank you so much, Mr. Freeman. We really, really appreciate it. Have Thank a great you night. So much. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Wow, Genevieve. That was honestly uh, another another great uh, interview here yeah, with uh, no, Mr. I, Stanton Freeman. I would have had so much more to ask if he had five hours, you know. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. I, I want to thank people, you know, if, if you're listening right now, you're listening to, I think we're going to air this at our normal time, which is 9 p.m. Pacific time. Mm-hmm. We, uh, in order to accommodate uh, Mr. Stanton Freeman, who, in my opinion, is it's an authority in 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 the study and research of, of you know the flying saucer uh, UFO phenomena, uh, in order to accommodate him, we uh, we did the show a few hours early. But honestly, it was worth it. I um you know I'm almost at a loss. It's it's really great when you have somebody that's so knowledgeable and and so matter of fact and still has a great sense of humor about <laughs> you know a topic that sometimes you know gets yeah. uh, brushed aside. You know, no, and honestly, the, the few things that I I was completely unaware of was, um, people, you know, people that have been looked upon favorably in the world of UFOs turn turn out to actually be quite liars. And of course, you get them, and you, but like, I was still surprised at the names that I heard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well. Let's let's take a quick break. I need a drink of water. If people may water. have noticed, <laughs> we didn't actually take a break because we were just so into the conversation mm-hmm. that we were we just we just kept moving right along. I I, I couldn't <clears throat> bring myself to interrupting uh, Mr. Freeman and and all the information he was sharing. And as you can tell, I need a sip of water. <clears throat> yeah, you were <laughs> coughing pretty bad. But uh, right. let's uh, let's play a quick jam. We're gonna come back. We're gonna wrap up um, and and enjoy this song. We're gonna be right back to wrap up the show. Um, West of the Rockies. I'm here. Genevieve is here. Enjoy this jam. We're gonna be right back. 
What's up, guys? This is Jorge Diaz of Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones. And you're listening to West of the Rockies with Frank. This portion of the show is sponsored by Haunted Orange County, your premier source for all things haunted in and around OC. From haunted history ghost walks to ghost group hunting expeditions at some of SoCal's most haunted destinations. Make your fall plans early and book an upcoming tour or investigation today. Visit hauntedoc.com. This edition of West of the Rockies, I'm Frank. Uh, it's always Engineer Frank on Twitter. Uh, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Genevieve UA on the old Twitter there. Mm-hmm. And the old for- Twitter. <laughs> the old Twitter. Don't forget to check out WTRradio.com, uh, where we will be posting this show. Uh, and, uh, and check out some of our past shows. We've been very fortunate to have some really, really amazing guests, such as, uh, Stanton Friedman tonight. We've been getting a lot of response. Uh, we see, we see the, the retweets and all that for, uh, Lynn Carter's, um, yeah, that, and, that interview. Uh, Campbell, been getting... Campbell, Lynn Campbell, I apologize. Yeah. Interview. That's been um, getting some great attention. Yeah, former Scientologist, former Sea Org member turned activist. Um, check that one out. We also, a few weeks ago, we talked to, Doctor, um, former astronaut, Doctor Story Musgrave. Yes, another fascinating Doctor interview. Twenty times over, something crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff on the website, and and you will find this on there as well. Um, so definitely check it out. Uh, amazing, amazing interview with Mr. Friedman. Like I said, I I grew up uh, watching him on television, and uh, he's he's always been uh, an authority in, in the uh, subject of UFOs. And I want to remind people that he's going to be at the uh, Contact in the Desert Conference happening May 29th through the 31st at Joshua Tree here in California. We've been there before. It's it's a really cool place. It's, fun. it's um, chill. A bit, a bit it's hippie. Hot. It's, a bit, it, it's hot. A bit yeah, calming. It's hot, but... <laughs> But it's great. You're not sitting outside sunbathing, you um, know. I, I unless you really like tarantulas. I really or dig the <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I really dig the uh, the Joshua Tree Retreat Center. Uh, that's what the uh, the uh, location is called. And I mean, tra- uh, and I'm sorry, not Travis. Uh, uh, Mr. Freeman is. It's one of uh, of many great guests. Uh, Travis uh, Walton will be there. But yeah, Eric Bondanikin, you know, George Nuri, all the all the big names in, in the field will be there discussing this topic and approaching it from so many different angles, which I think is a good thing because there are so many aspects to to this. And, you know, they all offer some very amazing insights. Um, last year we were there and I know you quite enjoyed Eric Bondanikin's uh, lecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was quite fascinating. We got a chance to, to meet him real quick and get our book signed, which getting that book was an odyssey in and of itself. <laughs> but no, honestly, definitely check it out. Contactinthedesert.com is the website. Try it and get tickets. I, I hope there's still some available. Um, but definitely go and check it out. It's, it, you, you know, you'll have a blast. Honestly, it was some of the most interesting stuff, uh, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of hearing and, and, and watching and just being a part of. And we want to thank Susan, of course, for, uh, helping us set up this, uh, yes. great interview. Yes. Again. Again. So we want to send a 
big shout out to her. And I think that's about it, Genevieve. If you miss any part of it, we'll post it on the website. We're going to zip it up now and let you go back to some music here. We're going to go out with a song by, you know, uh, the Foo Fighters, because <laughs> that's what they used to call UFOs. Back in the day, they thought they were <laughs> Foo Fighters. Say Foo Fighter real quick. Foo Fighter. Fighter. All right, we're going to listen to some food. (laughs) Enjoy this one. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Uh, Enjoy this tune. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Independent FM. New York. London. Philadelphia. Japan. Chicago. Paris. San Francisco. Tijuana. Los Angeles, California. The Independent FM. Indie Radio. Live from Swing House Studios in Hollywood. This is the all-new Independent FM.